Okay, thanks. Uh, last week, there was a news article that came out that in the state of Illinois, in 53 schools, that not one single student in those 53 schools had passed a math proficiency test. Think about that. Not just in one school, but 50, in 53 schools in Illinois, zero students could do math at their grade level. Now, before we think that these were just financially poor schools with a little or no resources or funding, consider this. In one of these schools, they spent an average of $56,000 per student. In another school, a medical prep high school, uh, they spent an average of $47,000 per student. So these weren't poor schools. They had money. They had resources. By comparison, just for frame of reference, my local school district where we live spends only $19,000 per student. And with by the latest statistics, 87% of students in high school could do math at a proficient level. Uh, let's even take Philadelphia, the, the, the wonderful Philadelphia school district, which spends an average of $15,000 per student. Even Philadelphia had 32% of its high school students pass a math proficiency test. And so you wonder what, what these schools in Illinois are, are doing with all that money when zero students out of 53 schools were proficient at, at math. You know, I remember when I was in grade school uh, needing to take the, the benchmark exams and those being uh, uh, very hyped up days in, in school, proficiency tests and, and benchmark tests and standardized tests. Well, today in our text, there is a standardized test. There is a proficiency exam for the church, especially for leaders of the church, pastors, elders, and deacons. Um, it's especially important with a text like today to not just dwell in the clouds of abstract theology and just talk about uh, this command to be an example in, uh, in these things that are listed as though they were just, you know, theology. It's important for us to apply them, to use this text as a mirror, to, to hold it up against ourselves, to say, are we meeting God's standard, especially if we are leaders, pastors, elders, or deacons in church? So this is what we're going to do today to today's text. We're going to take our spiritual proficiency proficiency exam. We're going to see how we measure up. Now we're going to talk about today's text in three uh, main points. First, even before the exam begins, uh, there's actually an encouragement. Okay, so we're going to talk about what that encouragement is. Then there's the command for us to be an example. Uh, and then there's that list of qualities that, that we are supposed to be examples of. So, uh, first, the encouragement. If everybody would look at verse 12, 1 Timothy 4, verse 12, just the first part of verse 12, the Bible says, Let no one despise 
your youth. That word despise is a word that's somewhat difficult to translate in English. It's actually a compound word. Uh, it's a word with a prefix. First part of the word means down. Okay, it just means down. The second part of the word means thoughts that turn into action. Okay, thoughts that turn into action. Not just thoughts, but thoughts that eventually uh, compel someone into action. But then it's, it's got that prefix down, which basically means this. To despise someone means you're thinking not just negative thoughts about them, but it propels you to, to behave in a way that's negative towards them. Okay, that's what it means to despise. Apparently, Timothy was despised in Ephesus for his youth. Just a little bit of, uh, you know, reminder of the background of this letter. This letter is, this letter comes as uh, Paul is most likely imprisoned. Uh, Paul has planted this church in, uh, in Ephesus. Uh, many years ago, but because he's most likely imprisoned, he needs somebody to take over the, the 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 ministry of this church, and he's chosen Timothy, his handpicked right hand man, to take over the 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 leadership of this church. And not only in Ephesus, as you will find in the New Testament, he also appoints Timothy to go to places like Corinth and many other. Of these churches that Paul has planted, but now he's, you know, given Timothy the task of of carrying on his ministry. You would think, and Paul's written letters to these churches to the same effect. You would think that these churches would give great respect to Timothy, but yet apparently, Timothy was maybe in some corners despised for his youth. That word "youth" is an interesting term. Um, this is according to the early church fathers. So even as early as Irenaeus in the in the first or second century, uh, there was also a uh, a Jewish historian. You might know the name Josephus. Okay, that word that's used for youth, that word commonly was used for somebody up to their thirties, even forties. Uh, many times, this word was used of military-aged men which often meant somebody who would be up to their 40s or even early 40s. Now, biblical scholars vary on the age of Timothy at the time of this letter. Uh, some say he was in his 20s, which is probably not very likely because, you know, given the, given the gap of time between Paul first meeting Timothy as a young man to establishing the church in Ephesus to being imprisoned and, you know, needing to set up a, 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 a follow-up for his ministry, a lot of years have passed. So probably was not likely that Timothy was 20. Was he in his 30s? Maybe, more likely. Was he even near his 40s or in his 40s? Perhaps. The word for you certainly would fit that, okay? The point here is Timothy was no young person. He was an adult. 
Um, I'm 43, going to be 44 this year. So maybe I might have just passed that stage of youth, quote unquote, by the definition of this word. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, the youngest, pre uh, the youngest person to ever become president. He was 42 when he became president. So, so maybe he was slightly past the, this stage of youth when he became president. Uh, one of the presidential uh, perspectives, he's now dropped out, Vivek Ramaswamy. He's 38, okay? These aren't kids. These are grown adults. So it takes something for, for people to look down on you when you're a grown adult. You know, this might not be very understandable in our culture, okay? When a person is in his 30s and his 40s, uh, in American culture, uh, we, we treat them as adults. But not in every culture. I can tell you this, in my culture, in many scenarios and situations in my very culture, uh, the Asian culture or Chinese culture, uh, I'm still a young person. In certain situations, in certain rooms, I'm still looked on as the child. Um, not despised, but still, you know, on a lower level. But in any case, Apparently, Timothy was despised because of his youth. It was a, this wasn't the only thing that gave Timothy difficulty, not just his youth. He might have been timid. 2 Timothy 1, 7. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, or according to the NIV, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Why would Paul find it necessary to encourage Timothy to not be timid or to not fear? Perhaps he was timid. Perhaps he wasn't, you know, maybe he was more of an introvert than a, than a people person. We know definitely Timothy was frequently ill, that his you know, physical constitution wasn't so great. First Timothy five, verse twenty-three: No longer drink only water, but only but use a little wine for your stomach's sake, and for your frequent infirmities. Now all of these traits. The fact that he might have been timid, the fact that he was frequently ill, the fact that he was still in his quote-unquote youth were apparently not qualities that the people in Ephesus wanted or respected in a leader. Perhaps these traits are not what any of us in today's world, humanly speaking, might want in a leader. Imagine if, speaking of presidential candidates, imagine if we had a presidential candidate who was frequently ill, who was perhaps timid, who was lacking, quote-unquote, lacking experience. Okay? I mean, one of, the crit, crit, one of the major criticisms from conservatives for Vivek was his 
lack of experience, his youth. And I'm not saying that was misfounded or whatever. I'm just stating facts. Okay? I'm not making any commentary. Timothy had qualities that if we're honest with ourselves, maybe we wouldn't want in a leader. And yet, and here's the encouragement. Okay, this is the encouragement. And yet, Timothy is the one that Paul chose to carry on his ministry. Timothy is the one that God, through his sovereign providence, chose to carry on Paul's ministry as a servant of Jesus Christ. You see, this is our encouragement. That God does not see as we see. And God does not evaluate us as we might evaluate others or ourselves. And God certainly does not choose as we, as man, might choose. Indeed, as the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, God chose the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. One of the reasons that we read Jeremiah 1 uh, verses 1 through 8, about the call of Jeremiah. You notice that Jeremiah was a youth when God called him. Now, now, just a point of clarification, the word youth in Hebrew is different than the word youth that's in Greek that's used here. Maybe different time frames. I don't think Jeremiah was in his 30s or 40s when God called him. I think he was a lad, like, like, a, like a youth youth. Okay? Um, but yet, God called Jeremiah as a youth to be his prophet, and not a prophet bearing good news. I mean, think about think about the, the message that Jeremiah had to deliver. Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down to destroy and to throw down to build and to plant Ima imagine a i don't know how Jer how old jeremiah was imagine a 17 or 18 year old walking to i don't know one of the uh, 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 major political party conventions in delivering this message okay um he will be despised and yet God does not see as we see. God chose Timothy. God chose Jeremiah to be his servants. Are any of us here today despised? Maybe not for youth. But maybe we're despised in other respects. Are we despised because of Education, or maybe a lack of education, maybe a lack of seminary education. Are we despised? You ever get despised because of the size of our church or the size of our budget? I know that might be a, you know, uh, wrong thing to say, but it's the truth. Okay. Like, we're not supposed to focus as Christians on size and money. And I think every Christian would say that. But let's just be honest. The fact of the matter is, 
in things like Presbytery and things like denominations and general assemblies, I'm not saying Vanguard Presbytery, but in general, in 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 uh, in general assemblies and denominational meetings and Presbytery meetings, uh, money and church size matter, and they give someone some respect, wrongfully so. Are we despised because we don't have charm or charisma or loquaciousness? You know, if you don't belong to a big church, at least if you're a masterful preacher and are able to, you know, uh, knit together wonderful, wonderful, loquacious sermons about nothing, uh, you might get respect. The encouragement for us today is that we are not to take what man sees as important. We are to take what God sees, how God chooses, as important. So there's the encouragement. Next, the Bible talks about that we need to be an example. Uh, look at 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. I'll have to let you guys know today we're only going to focus on verse 12, okay? I, I know I, I, I said to, to verse 16, next week when I'm back, we'll cover the rest of the verses. All right, 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. The second part of verse 12 says, Be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. That word, to be an example, literally it means to leave an imprint by a stroke or a blow. Okay, imagine you have a nail, okay, and you take a hammer and you strike the nail. What's that going to do? The nail is going to leave an imprint on something. That is that word. Literally, that it's, it's the word for leaving a mark or leaving an imprint by a strike or a blow. Um, a typewriter actually does this, right? When, when you type the, the, the uh, I don't know what those are called, the, the, the letters, they make imprints, you know, with ink, but, but they make imprints on, on, the, on the paper. This is the word that Thomas used. In John 20, 25, when he said, unless I, see in unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I would not believe. That word print is the, is the same word that's used here, for example. It's a pattern. It's the mark. It's the imprint that's left. To be an example is to leave an imprint in other people's lives. So it means uh, you're not just telling them to be something or do something. Um, it means you're, you're, you're living in a way consistently and over and over and over again, living in a way, in a, in a, in a lifestyle that, that, that impacts somebody's life and, and, and shows them, oh, 
this is the pattern. This is the way I'm supposed to live, and it impacts them. It, it leaves a mark on them, an impression on them. Has to be consistency. There has to be action, not just words. Okay, this cannot be, you know, do as I say, not as I do, right? To be an example means people can see in you a genuine life pattern, and it's impactful enough, and certainly the Holy Spirit has a lot to do with this. You know, this, is, this has got to be a spirit-wrought work, but it has to be impactful enough that, that it, it leaves an imprint in their lives. That's what it means to be an example. Now, in verse 12, we get this list of six different words okay, that we are supposed to be an example in. And we're going to break this into two parts. The first three words have to do with more observable behaviors, more observable things, uh, maybe external things. Uh, external, not in the sense that they, you know, they're not heartfelt, but external in the in the sense of they're just more observable. The first three: word, conduct, and love. Those are more observable qualities. the 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 next three words are more are are less observable qualities, right? More internal things: spirit, faith, and purity. What we're going to do is we're going to ask a series of questions okay we're not just going to explain what the words are but we're going to get practical you know it does us it does us no good in a text like this just to dwell in abstract theology as we said in the beginning right that, that loses the the, the the purpose of this text uh, rather we're going to treat this like a proficiency exam like a mirror holding up a mirror up to ourselves to examine ourselves so with, for each of these, we're going to ask some questions of ourselves. The Bible tells us that we are to be an example in word. The Bible says, James 3, verse uh, 6, The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. In other parts of James, it says the tongue is such a small organ, but like a rudder, it can steer a ship. Like a spark, it can set a whole force on fire. How are your words? Now, I'm not just talking about how you speak to others in church. We're all supposed to be polite, right? And we're expected, and we are most of the time polite. Most of the time. Most of the time we are polite in church, although sometimes I've come across situations where people are not so polite in church. Okay. But how are your words? Not only at church, but everywhere else. How about at home? How do you speak to your spouse? Not only on a good day, but especially on the difficult days when you haven't had your coffee and you've had a tough day from work and you come home from work and you're tired and frustrated and you see your spouse. How do you speak to your children? Not just on the days when they're wonderful and behaved and they're angel kids, but 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 on the on the tantrum days. How do you speak to your children? 
How do you speak when you're in your car, when you're all alone, and you're late for work, and the person in front of you all of a sudden just stops, like taps on their brake in the, in the middle of the highway, and you're like, <laughs> How are your words when you're at work, and there's a difficult customer on the phone, and they are cursing you out on the phone? How are your words when your sports team loses? It tells us, the Bible tells us to be an example in conduct. Again, not just asking how is your conduct in front of other Christians on Sunday at church, because again, we all have this expectation and most of us meet it most Sundays and we're very cordial, we're very polite with one another. It's easy to kind of fake this on Sunday. But what if someone could follow you for an entire day? Or follow you for an entire week? How is your conduct? How's your conduct at home? With your spouse and your kids? If we could interview your spouse for your kids and ask them, do you treat your family members the same way that you treat church members? What would their response be? What's your conduct? Is your conduct different with church members versus your own family members? What is your conduct in everyday situations with non-believers, especially with non-believers. Remember the words of Scripture, 1 Peter 2, verse 12. Have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. The Gentiles there meaning in, in the context of 1 Peter, non-believers. Have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So how is your conduct in everyday situations among Gentiles? If I were to, if not me, but like if someone were to be, remember those cartoons and, and you would have like people sitting on people's shoulders giving them advice and whatever. If, if, if somebody could be that person on the shoulder and kind of follow you around, uh, would they see a different person when you were with Christians versus when you are with non-believers? How is your conduct? The Bible tells us we are supposed to be examples in love. Mark read today in the, um, in the confession that we are to love God with all of our heart, our soul, our strength, our might. But it's not just love for God, it's love for each other. 1 John 3.18 tells us, that we are to love not only in word, but in deed and in truth. And it's interesting that John pairs those things together, in deed, in action, and in truth. Almost like saying, if you're only loving others in word, that's not the truth. That's not true love. Right? You have to love in word and in deed. And then you get the truth of love. 
so do we love the brethren. Not only in word, hey, I hope you feel better. I'll pray for you. Prayer is very important. But sometimes we... Here's the honest truth. Sometimes we say that as an excuse to, to not interact with people and to not really love them with action. Okay? That's the, that's the ugly truth. We use prayer as a get-out-of-jail card from really loving the person by our actions, by deeds. Do we show the brethren love, not only in word, but in deed and in truth? Do you love your enemies? Matthew 5, verse 44, Jesus said, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Notice Jesus doesn't just stop at love your enemies. He gives, he explains what that love for your enemies looks like. You're supposed to bless them. You're supposed to do good for them. When's the last time we did good for somebody that hated us? You know, this is way more than just, I don't hate them anymore, but you know, we keep our distance. No, Jesus says, do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. How, when was the last time we prayed for one of our enemies? You know, the more I, I, I read this, that, that love your enemy part is, is incredibly difficult to do. You know, I think at most, maybe sometimes I'll get to blessing them, right? But then to do good for them and to pray for them, a lot of work to be done, perhaps. So you have these more observable things. Then you have these less observable things, the next three words, we're supposed to be an example in spirit. Now, it, it might be a little bit difficult. Of all these words, these are all words that are very simple and straightforward. I don't think it takes a lot of explanation to understand what these words mean, except maybe for this one. What does it mean to be an example in spirit? Well, when we, whenever we have a little difficulty understanding scripture we need to let scripture define scripture and so this is what ephesians 5 verses 18 to 21 says about what it's like to be filled with the spirit okay ephesians 5 beginning in verse 18 do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation but be filled with the spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody in your heart to the lord giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So here the Bible tells us to be filled with the Spirit, and thankfully it defines for us what that entails, or what that, what that means. It means daily heartfelt worship, making psalms and melody in your heart to the Lord. It means daily thankfulness to God and not complaints and resentment, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus. It means serving others. That's what it is like to be filled with the Spirit, is to be serving others. Submit to one another 
in the fear of God. So how is your daily worship? How often are you thankful for all things? And now, how often are you serving others? Because that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Are we being an example in faith? You know, the reason that we chose Psalm 62, there's many psalms that do this. Uh, I just chose Psalm 62 because it was... it. it I, I, for length, okay, um, but but Psalm sixty-two, like many psalms, are a, a great example of a prayer of faith. Because if you start out, Psalm sixty-two, it says, "Truly, my soul silently waits for God. From Him comes from comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved." Now, those are words that all of us aspire to say, okay. But realize that the psalmist isn't praying this when he's in a time of tranquility and just quiet, peaceful meditation. He is praying these words in the hot crucible of people trying to make him fail, right? Of people attacking him, close people attacking, because these, this is what the next verses say. Verse 3, how long will you attack a man? Verse 4, they only consult to cast him down from his high position. These are scoundrels trying to backstab him. These are close people who are his co uh, consultants, his advisors, who are trying to bring him down. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. When a person is in, in a situation like that, and they can still say to themselves, I trust in God. I will wait silently for his salvation. I will not be shaken. That is great faith. As opposed to, uh, God, I'm in hot water now, so I know you're there, but at some point I got to take matters into my own hands and I've got to figure this out myself, which is what we often do. How is your faith? How is your trust in God? Not, not just in a peaceful, tranquil situations in your life, but particularly in the difficult, in the crucible situations of your life. Last but not least, the Bible tells us we need to be examples in purity. And this is very straightforward and simple. How are your eyes? How are your thoughts? You know, I know for men, uh, we we get tempted most by through our eyes, through 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 physical, you know, sight. Which is why this Sunday is going to be such a temptation for a great many deal of men, right? Because you've got the Super Bowl, and all these advertisers are are are, are itching to to get their commercials. You know, during the Super Bowl, and they all have what 20, 30 seconds to make their to make their uh, a pitch, and they know their main audience are twenty-five to fifty-year-old guys, 
why do you think you get the obnoxiousness and the and the uh, sexuality and the other uh, advertisings that 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 vaunt fleshly desires all over these commercials, especially on Super Bowl Sunday. I know women. My wife has told me women are more dis, uh, uh, tempted through thoughts and feelings and imaginations, things that threaten their purity. So how are your eyes and how are your thoughts? How did we do on this proficiency exam? You know, when I was in grade school, um, there were times when I did not do so well on a proficiency exam. And I think after, you have to get over that initial hump of just disappointment in yourself. And you have to say to yourself, I'm going to study better. I'm going to get better. Whatever it was for this type of math problem, whatever it was, uh, you know, the SATs had the verbals. Uh, I, the English part, I, I didn't do so well on that part. So I studied, I studied my butt off uh, to try to get better. At some point with this proficiency exam um, from scripture, we have to get over the disappointment that we feel about ourselves and we have to strive to get better. And I'm not saying works righteousness because we are saying that this is spirit wrought. This is God working in us. But when God works in us, we must work. Let me leave uh, with this final encouragement. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says this, For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2 not only talks about God's inward work of sanctification in our lives so that it's not just us gritting and grinding and trying to be better, it's God working in us. Ephesians 2.10 not only talks about this spirit-wrought righteousness that is the only way we you know, have a personal righteousness, sanctification, okay? But it talks about a bigger picture than that. It says we are his worksmanship and that we were created in Christ Jesus for a very specific purpose, for good works, which means when, when God took me and knit me in my mother's womb, uh, this morning we talked about predestination, right? When God predestined me for salvation from before the creation of the world, uh, it wasn't just, okay, I'm going to create this person and kind of let him be and, you know, and then he's off and it's just a creature. We're created with a purpose. That purpose is for good works, which means... If God created us to be this way, then he's going to ensure that we end up this way. Let me use this illustration. Um, 
My wife, my wife has a car. It's a Honda Civic. It has a、uh, it has an air conditioning component system in it.、Uh, Honda created that air conditioning system for one purpose: to keep the car cool.、Um, Honda, because it knows it's putting its name on that air conditioning system, when it created that system to keep the car cool. It also made sure that there was a guarantee attached to that system. Well, when that system breaks, Honda said it it would, you know, repair it and make it better. Because it's attaching its name to that product, and it wants to make sure that that product does the purpose for which it was created. And so, when that air conditioning system broke down, we took it to the dealership and they fixed it for free because it was covered by the warranty. That's what God does for us. In terms of our good works, God created us for this purpose. His name is behind the product, and so yes, God is going to be faithful, and He's going to help us, give us the grace, give us the spirit wrought righteousness and sanctification that He promised that His product would do. For we are His worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. May God grant us more of His Spirit, more of this Spirit-wrought righteousness. You know, in 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 Vanguard, one of the reasons Vanguard Presbyterian that we started was this debate over、um, new birth, right?、Uh, where I, I forget. I forget which parts of the church were, were denying new birth, but but one of the one of the one of the I remember one of the emphases of Vanguard Presbyterian. Mark, you correct me if I'm wrong. Was this this emphasis on,、um, you know, when you become a Christian, it's not just a you just it's not just you buying a ticket into heaven. It, it's you are a whole new creation. You, you, God regenerates you. You're a whole new creation. You have this new birth, okay? But new birth into what? What's the purpose, right? The Bible says for good works. And when God does it, He's going to be faithful. He's going to be faithful to His product because that's His name on it, right? May God give us that grace. Let us pray, Heavenly Father. We thank you for this text. We thank you for its teaching, but most of all, we thank you for、uh, its reminders、uh, for us、uh, to be examples in 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 word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, and faith, in purity. Father, we we recognize that、uh, the the maybe the the standards are very high because you are holy, and you call us to be holy as you are holy. We see. The areas that we have fallen short, but Father, we also delight in the fact that we are your new creation, and not just your new creation in, without purpose or without、uh, without a goal in mind, but we are your new creation specifically to do good works, and that you will be faithful to us, and you will continue that good work unto completion. Father, we pray for.、Uh, These areas in our lives where we need to grow, give us the strength. Give us 
more righteousness. Give us more of your spirit that we may indeed become examples to the flock in each of these areas. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.